The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here. I have with me in the studio Dr. Joseph A. Piper, Jr., President of the Seminary for our monthly edition of Faith and Practice, where we answer your questions that you send in to us over the course of the previous month. Dr. Piper, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Zach. It's really good to be with you. Dr. Piper, would you open us in prayer? I will, Zach. Good and kind, Father in heaven, we look unto you as servants to their masters and handmaidens to their mistress. Lord, you are our rock and refuge. You are our God, you are our Father. We thank you that you've brought us into the number and granted us the privileges of the sons of God. We thank you that includes your Spirit who indwells us and illumines our understanding as we search the Scriptures. We would do so today in dependence upon him, knowing that Christ has purchased for us uh, wisdom that uh, comes from the Word by the Spirit. So grant that to us now, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to keep our announcements brief so we can dive into your questions. Just a couple of things coming up this summer that we would love for you all to be involved in. One is our commencement ceremony this Friday, May 18th at Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church here in Greenville at 6 p.m. Dr. John Payne of Christ Church Presbyterian in Charleston will be delivering the commencement address, and we have... Um, I believe 13 graduates from six countries uh, getting uh, 14 degrees. And so it'll be a very exciting time together. I hope that you can join us if you're here in the Greenville area or if you're willing to drive in from out of town. Other announcements? Are we going to, uh, you know, last year we uh, webcast that. Are we going to do that this year or do you know? I don't know. that I can ask our media director. I think there are plans to do that, and Mitchell Road is outfitted for a, a live webcast. Hopefully, we can get that information up on social media and by email to, uh, to our friends and family around the world. Good. Other announcements, we have our PCA General Assembly lunch on Thursday, June 14th in Atlanta at the, the, the Hyatt Regency Hotel where the convention will be held. And we'll also have a, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> Dr. Pipe is laughing because I called it a convention. Well, you know what I mean, where the assembly will, will be held. In convention the, is a better term, but that's yeah, okay. <laughs> convention for the other activities. And then also... Uh, we will have a breakfast at the OPC General Assembly. Dr. Curto and Alumni Association President Jim Stevenson will be uh, will be hosting that and giving a brief update. If you will be at the OPC URC in a joint uh, synod slash assembly, please join us for that breakfast. We would love to see you there. I'll also intend to come up and make some visitation at the ARP Synod, which is the week before the PCA General Assembly. The only other thing I have on my list are our classes that we have this summer. The Pastors Institute will be in July, I believe July 23rd through 27th, on family uh, pastoral counseling, and, and that will be taught by Dr. Scipione and Dr. Backus. If you want more information about that, please contact the seminary. We'll also have our Southern Presbyterianism course taught by Dr. Wilborn and Reform Scholasticism taught by Dr. McGraw in the first half of August. So there's a lot going on here at the seminary. There always is, and we love it when our friends can be involved with us. And you know that Southern Presbyterian course, Zach, they do that tour then uh, in Columbia and Charleston. It's a great vacation time as well as a study time. Exactly. 
uh, I really enjoyed that that tour myself. I'm hoping to audit the class this year. Um, so our first question comes from Christian Rogers of Lake Forest, California. And Christian asks, regarding the second commandment, it was the view of Vermigli and more moderate reformed divines that images of Christ are not to be used in the church or to facilitate public or private worship of God, but may be utilized for the purposes of pedagogy. Unlike the opinion of Calvin, Knox, and their Puritan descendants, who prohibited any depiction for any reason. For us Presbyterians in the Westminster tradition, how are we to deal in wisdom with the plethora of cultural depictions of any of the persons of the Godhead, primarily the Son, Jesus Christ, in and out of the church community? Do we have such leave to utilize images of Christ for purchases of catechesis or artistic expression, or are we to completely shun any such depictions in the church and wider culture? Well, Christian, thank you. You've raised a question that uh, in my own presbytery continues to be a, an ongoing uh, matter of, uh, of some controversy. Um, I, for those of us listening, or for those of you listening, who would be in the Westminster tradition, uh, our standards answer the question for us uh, quite clearly in Larger Catechism 109. The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. And this is the foundation for what we call the regular principle of worship, tolerating a false religion. And then third, making any representation of God of all or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. Now, that's a, a fairly comprehensive uh, statement. I believe it is a biblically defensible uh, statement. Um, one of the problems with the images of Christ uh, used in pedagogy is that they are what Jeremiah would write about any type of idolatrous images. They are uh, delusional, they are deceptive, they are vain. And the big issue really gets into the doctrine of Christology, and I've argued this in our presbytery, that it does strike at the vitals of religion because it's a denial of the uh, what we call the hypostatic union, which means that our Savior is the God-man person, and that uh, as the one person, he has a complete divine nature, a complete human nature. He's now exalted in that nature, and there's no artistic representation that can begin to uh, plumb the depths of that. Only words, as they are revealed in Scripture, and then explained can reveal the true um, nature and person of our Savior. And that's why uh, Calvin uh, and uh, the Reformers that have followed him from that point forward have insisted that we do not use images for pedagogy. The commandment itself, I think, gets to the point. A lot of people miss this. It's actually two imperatives. The first one is not to make any image or likeness, and the second is not to worship God through any image or likeness. And so we actually are prohibited from making um, these images, worshiping God, then from our own imagination. And for pedagogical purposes, we don't need these. A church uh, in the Western world did fine without them uh, for centuries, and so relatively mid-20th century argument, I would say, following the Arminian evangelical church that we need to have uh, uh, pictures of our Savior when we teach our children. Well, 
he gave us a picture, and that's the Lord's Supper. And every time we observe the Lord's Supper, as parents, we should remind our children, this is the portrait that Christ gave us, always to remember that he uh, is the God-man, but he took a true body and a reasonable soul, and so he's made just like us. And so I would argue very strongly against any type of a catechesis or pedagogical use of images of Christ. Now, whether or not you really intended to open up the can of worms in the second part of your question, uh, it's a very useful discussion. I had it this year in uh, one of my uh, classes, uh, and and that is uh, when you look at classic art, some of the great uh, masterpieces. We're going to be in Rome next week, and one of the churches we're going to visit has some Caravaggio paintings, and, and at least one of those is going to be a painting of Christ. Uh, so the Christian look at such classic art. I think this gets to be a, a bit of an area of Christian liberty. We know it's not Christ, and regardless of the artist's uh, intention, it's not Christ. Whereas in a Bible storybook, it's the artist's intention to depict Christ. And so I'm able to look at uh, a, a classic piece of art, a masterpiece, uh, from the perspective that uh, this is brilliant art, um, and as uh, a Christian, I'm glad to be exposed to it, but I know it's not Christ, and in no way to me is it considered a depiction of Christ. Now, others won't go that far, and I would respect their conscience on that. Uh, and I can be challenged where I am, but that's where I am now. Now, we have here in town a, a university that's got a, a great art collection, but they tend to focus on that as art about Christ. And so every spring they actually act out the scenes from the masterpieces. And see, that's idolatry. And so there you've crossed over. Uh, and, be, and so because of how they use the art there, I would not go view the art, whether they were having living representation or not. But they're good things for us to think about. And the important thing then, once we get beyond catechesis, is um, we must be able to do it in faith and have clear consciences before God. Thank you for the question, Christian. This came up with one of the elders at our, our church the other night when we were standing in a, uh, in a visiting line together, and we had uh, almost this exact conversation. And the main point I brought up was the point that Dr. Piper shared, and that is that the Word is sufficient to instruct our children just as it is sufficient to instruct us in all manners relating to faith or godliness. Our next question comes from Joshua Morrison of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Good to hear from you, Josh. He asks, how ought a member of the PCA respond to the existence of innovative ecclesiological practices that seek to involve non-ordained individuals in the formal spiritual leadership of the church? For example, there is at least one congregation that I know of which has a women's council that serves alongside of the ordained officers of the church to provide counsel and direction to the discipleship and evangelism ministry of the church. What about entities like boards of trustees and full-time ministry directors? Thanks, Josh, and we look forward to you getting moved down here. Uh, I'm opposed to these, uh, as you call them, innovative ecclesiastical practices. They, for the most part, uh, seem to be ways to get around the prohibition of authoritative um, non-male leadership in the church. 
I know of the one church. I looked at their website. So how do we respond? That's the difficulty. Um, I think it should happen in their presbyteries. You know, I sit over here, and I hear a lot of these things, uh, but what I cannot do, either in terms of time or my own responsibilities, is go after every ecclesiastical irregularity right now in my denomination. I encourage people to do it. There are a lot of them. They need to come from local sessions. I'm not on a session. It's sessions that should be bringing these things first to their presbyteries and then from the presbyteries to the journal assemblies. And so I'm encouraging sessions to do that. I encourage elders to do that. I'd be glad to support them when they do that, but it's up to you men out there on sessions or people in churches, and if you're in the presbytery that's doing things like this, then this is where it really needs uh, to uh, begin. Now, the entities like Board of Trustees, it depends on how they're used. Uh, some uh, states, uh, when a church incorporates, uh, which that's a whole other question, does the church really need to incorporate? I'm of the opinion they don't, but if a church incorporates, it has to have a Board of Trustees. This is a non-ecclesiastical uh, group. Uh, it is merely to meet the uh, requirement of the state for incorporation, and it doesn't have to have any power per se outside of meeting once a year and verifying the corporation is valid. Now, in some states, the trustees would have to sign off on financial transactions as well. But if you want to be incorporated, the state requires that. Now, what we did in Texas was the elders were also the board of trustees, and we would simply uh, adjourn the session meeting and have a meeting of the board of trustees. And that way, if you had to have uh, an authoritative financial decision being made, it would and the deacons and elders needed legally to have trustees to do it, then it's the same men, and I would do it uh, uh, that way. Uh, I joke about uh, one denomination is almost another office in the church, the, uh, their trustees. And some of those churches, the trustees, I think, have way too much uh, authority in the life of the church. But I'm not in that denomination, so that's not my particular problem. Now, ministry directors, I don't know quite what you would mean by that, but if you have someone that's been hired to run the youth program or the children's program um, that's a non-ordained person, I think, again, that becomes a matter of liberty and resources. I think churches ought to do much more with volunteer-type work, but if a uh, church wants to put a person in a slot like that. But I would not want ordained people even placed into those those kind of situations. Or a church administrator, that's a good role for a ruling elder or a deacon. Get a man that is retired, is semi-retired, and uh, has got skills in that area as a ruling elder, and you've got that's dynamite. He's on the session. He's taking part in the uh, leadership of the church and in the administration of, of the church. But I wouldn't so I wouldn't put ordained people in these positions. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's okay if a church has the resources, if it wants to hire somebody to oversee a particular ministry in the church. You said you, you wouldn't put ordained people in these no. positions. Okay. 
Our next question comes from Chad Warner of Greenville, South Carolina. And Chad asks, how can we respond biblically to those who say God doesn't sincerely desire the salvation of all people because he hasn't elected all people? Well, Chad, there's, there's, um, there's two basic responses uh, to that. Uh, one is, and you'll see men like uh, Smith, Murray, Dabney uh, work this out, that there is a uh, a revealed will that manifests God's um, revealed uh, desire to see uh, people saved and not go to hell. I think Dabney illustrates it with a historical case of George Washington. There was a, a young man whom he deeply loved and uh, did not want to execute that young man for treason, but he, his office required him to do so. And so... Uh, that just as God has ordained his moral law, and yet in his uh, providence he has foreordained all that comes to pass, uh, there are these incomprehensible aspects of God's uh, being. But the second answer, and this is actually the one I hold to, is the Bible never says that God desires the salvation of all uh, people indiscriminately. The passage in Timothy is all kinds of people. He just said to pray for kings and people in authority. The passage in in Ezekiel is in a covenant context. And God is long-suffering with this covenant people and is not willing that any should perish. Um, And so, plus the language can be a bit uh, of a way, the same when the Bible says that God repented. We know he didn't repent. And so it's a bit of a, a... figure of speech to show that God is very patient and long-suffering. So I promiscuously, anybody that heard me preach knows, I promiscuously preached the gospel. I pleaded with sinners to come to Christ, but I'm never going to say that uh, to sinners indiscriminately that God loves you, that Christ died for you, or that God desires your salvation if you'll only come. Thank you for the question, Chad, and, and thank you, Dr. Piper, for opening up those those hot passages um, that, that that speak to the issue for us. Our next question is was submitted anonymously, and it, it's a sensitive question, and it's also one that's timely in light of some recent news in the evangelical world. And the question is, should churches handle sexual abuse investigations internally? In other words, at what point should sexual abuse cases be reported to the civil authorities instead of being left to the discipline of the church? My question comes from the title of a recent article in Christianity Today, which argues that churches are prone to cover up sexual abuse by keeping investigations internal rather than involving the civil authorities. You know, this really is a a very serious question in our culture. when I was a very young pastor and faced with a uh, sex abuse case uh, that was handled within the church, uh, the person repented, uh, seems perhaps even have been converted through that process. Um, but many years later, I learned that the full extent of what had happened had never come out because uh, the young people never told the truth. Uh, To this day, I regret that. I've asked God's forgiveness, and if I could, I would ask the forgiveness particularly of of one person in particular. Uh, So when I was in California and had a case, then I I learned from 
actually one of the men that and they'll be dealing with this by the way in the summer institute so it's a good opportunity to get some sound pastoral and legal input from uh Scipione and Bacchus but Scipione told me when we had, he said you are required by law to report this to the civil authorities either the person must report it or you must report it and that has to do with child abuse um if you get into the matter that sexual harassment has gone on uh, with uh, would not be a violation of child abuse laws but of uh, Christian conduct uh, I still think at this point that if a woman comes forward and says that she was pressured into sexual activity or man uh, that the church uh, should, because of sexual harassment laws, uh, report that to to the authorities after it's been investigated. You know, part of the problem today is it's easy to throw this stuff around. There's been a lot of innocent people who have been tarnished because of somebody claiming something. Uh, and so we also have to have to be careful. We must be careful we never cover up I never think the church can sufficiently deal with these things uh, if there has been uh, forcible, uh, I mean, rape is against the law. I would report a, a rape as a pastor. Um, uh, sexual harassment where a person has been pressured to do things but not forced into doing things, fearful they would lose their job or something. That's not against the law per se, but I think that the church needs to deal um, very straightforward with it. Now, in Presbyterianism, again, we've got more resources to go into church discipline than independency. But the, the big thing is we must never, regardless of the reputation of the person or the ministry or the church, we must never say we'll do these things internally to, quote, protect the name of Christ. No, we're not protecting the name of Christ. We're protecting our name or the name of our institution or of our church. So I think that any time that there's any evidence that a law has been broken, that the church should uh, send that person to the, to the authorities. But th that's the, the thin line is, has a law really been broken? And... Is this merely a person who, I mean, we biblically have the example of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It's not far-fetched that uh, men or women could find themselves in a position where the other person is lying about them. That's why now I encourage our guys as they go in the ministry that even uh, it's not just to be have accountability when you're counseling uh, the person, but be doing it where... Uh, there is uh, people right at hand, so your secretary's there, the doors open, or whatever. And there's a also a diary with with time uh, down. And you know what you can't protect is it be, being accused of of saying something you didn't say. But if you're taking all the other precautions, you're going to be better off. So we have to guard on both hands. We got to guard against. I mean, right today. I don't mean to be insensitive, but I know of cases where a man or woman has stepped forward lying uh, in order to get back at someone that 
actually in Potiphar's wife's case didn't make the sexual advance or just didn't do whatever the person wanted. So we also need to remember that with ministers, there must be two or three witnesses, that we're not going to take the, the, the word of one person against uh, the minister either. So we've got to get all these things into the hopper. And, but we must be sure that at the end of the day that we've not covered over so that, all right, yes, I just saw a YouTube thing of a, of a pastor. He was a youth worker, and it's 20 years later now, and, and it's coming out, and his first church let him resign, and he repented supposedly, but it was always kept a secret and went to his other church. And now um, it's out, and the, and the YouTube is showing the woman who was then a teenager, now she's in late 20s or early 30s, her remarks alongside his, quote, public uh, confession, which was really a sham. Uh, so when the church knows things and takes lip service and doesn't take seriously the rights of the young person or the other person that's been violated, that is a, a sin. Well, another area is in the area now of pornography, and I just learned of another case where uh, a church and a pressure let a man go I think his wife has divorced him, but I understand he's doing a church plant in my denomination in another city. Uh, This is the kind of stuff that just cannot go on. Uh, Presbyterians ought to have a rule that if your pastor or a ruling elder, but particularly if your pastor is caught in pornography, it must come to Presbytery. It cannot be handled in-house. If it comes to Presbytery, it should rise to the level of other sexual sins require a minimum of one year suspension from the ministry. I think that uh, pornographic addiction should require a one-year suspension from uh, from the ministry. So there's lots of things that are getting covered up, and we've got uh, uh, an approach to sanctification in, in the Presbyterian Church in America that tends to um, particularly not deal well with pornography and unbiblical divorce. I know one church, like three divorces, and some of the people married others from within the congregation. You can imagine the shape that church is in right now. So this whole approach to sanctification that says just tell yourself you're in Christ and you're justified and don't uh, don't call people to a moral accountability is also destroying people. So a lot of other things going on here uh, as well, anonymous. And, and if you've been the subject of uh or the object i guess i should say of something like this uh, don't 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 cooperate with the cover-up if you have to go to to higher up in the church or whatever uh, don't allow people to silence you though because of of uh, protecting the name of someone i've rambled a lot on this one it's really hard if i was going to organize thoughts a bit and, and correct me if i'm wrong dr piper what i'm hearing you say is Though in Presbyterianism, we have mechanisms in place to get at the truth in these kinds of situations. At no point whatsoever ought we to use the tools at our disposal to cover up somebody's sin or to obstruct someone from going to legal authorities. Right. And in fact, the safer course of action is to use those resources at our disposal um, in police departments and investigative units that have, you know, more manpower than most sessions do to get at the truth of what's going on. Good. 
Yeah. Thank you for the question. This is crucially important, especially for those of us who are seeking to go into ministry or are already pastors. And um, and you heard from Dr. Piper, he's faced these kinds of situations twice in his ministry. And so you can expect that um, the likelihood of you facing them. And much more so today than when I faced them. But that's why all of you need to come and take advantage of the Summer Institute. <laughs> yes, it's a good, good wrap-up. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Our next question comes from Isaac Overden of Geelong in Victoria State in Australia. Isaac, always good to hear from you, brother. He says, do ministers need an extra, quote, Sabbath, end quote, because they are, quote, working, end quote, on the Sabbath? Well, no, they're actually doing Sabbath work. So they're not working on the Sabbath. They're doing Sabbath work. Part of this concept comes out of the misunderstanding of what rest is. The Sabbath is not primarily a day of physical rest. Sabbath is spiritual rest involving primarily public and private worship, deeds of necessity, and mercy. So, uh, frankly, If you're a minister, you'd much rather be preaching than listening to preaching. At least that's my case. Um, So uh, it is Sabbath-keeping. In the Old Covenant, the priests didn't have another Sabbath, and and Christ points out the fact that they're doing this work on the Sabbath, and they're doing hard manual work. They're doing sacrifices and, and those types of things as well. So uh, a minister, I think, should uh, carefully protect his family, take a day off, um, and uh, do things at the house with family. If you need to have a hobby, I think that's good. But he doesn't need to have uh, two days in addition to to the Sabbath. And of course, the problem today is is uh, what I'm going to call lazy ministers. I just heard of, of a church that's pretty Reformed, and the minister just can't handle two Sundays on the Lord's Day. And I said, well, what's wrong with this kid? You mean two services on two, the Lord's Day? Two services on the Lord's Day. You know, most of us uh, had two services, Lord's Day, taught Sunday school, and Wednesday night. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, we need to have harder working ministers. They need to do Sabbath work, and they don't need an extra Sabbath. But I will put in a thing here that I think ministers should have a couple of weeks of your study leave. In addition to some people in the churches push back about a four-week vacation. But you realize that a minister never gets those three-day holidays that the rest of the congregation gets. He can't go off and see uh, Mama because he's got Monday off from work and he can take off Friday afternoon and come back Monday night. We get a lot of those in the culture. He can't normally get away uh, at, at Christmas or uh, for Thanksgiving or things like that because of congregational responsibilities. And he's always on call. Uh, and again, Maybe the lazy ones aren't, but uh, those men who take seriously their responsibility, the phone can ring at 2 o'clock in the morning, and does. So I think that, uh, yeah, I encourage churches to give a man four Sundays of vacation, two weeks of study leave. I think it's a good practice if a man would use it to write and to study, to build in some sabbatical time, not for rest, physical rest, but so that he could... Uh, work on a book or do some broader reading he's not been able to do. Or even just push out his sermon prep beyond the next quarter or whatever. I know many, many pastors use their sabbaticals to map out their preaching and even uh, generate outlines for preaching for years and years to come. You know many, huh? Many, yeah. I don't know many. 
Well, our definition of many is probably different. <laughs> our next question comes from Blake Blunt of Zebulon, Georgia. Good to hear from you, Blake. He asks, should extended families stick close together? We live in a very mobile, fractured society. Does biblical teaching speak to this? Interesting uh, question, Blake. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm asked this question sometimes by ministers. Say, I'd like to get a call that's close to my parents. Uh, they're getting older, and and uh, but I, I think the Bible speaks to that. When the man tells Christ, "Let me go home and bury my father," it wasn't that the father was on his deathbed? He wanted to delay his responsibilities until uh, he um, uh, his parents died, and Christ said no. Uh, God's sovereign is calling, and. The first consideration is not what culture do I prefer or where does my family live. So for a minister, it's very different. Uh, And we see this. I mean, you know, the schools of the prophets, they were not living in their particular tribe. Uh, The apostles were itinerating, taking their wives with them, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Jesus didn't have um, close family uh, residents. Uh, so the biblical pattern, it's nice when we can. Now, if we're not in the ministry uh, and we can stay close to family, I think that's very good as long as there's a good church. But if you have a choice, I'm going to stay here in the family place. And we got another question. In fact, we'll do that one next, Zach, from Princeton. Um, even though there's not a good church, or I'm going to have to move my family was a good church or the good res- and good resources for Christian education, whether it's a homeschool co-op or a, or a Christian school. So, no, it's, it's nice when it can be that way. Uh, but I have a, a son-in-law who's a pastor, and he is up in Michigan. And so I don't see that family very often with those grandchildren. I have a son in town who I don't see a lot more uh, with his kids. Um, and they get upset with me, and they want me to retire. And, and uh, actually, they were at my uh, at my banquet, and afterwards, I turned to my daughter-in-law. I said, do you see why I can't retire? And she says, I know, but I'm selfish. She was being sweet. She understands, though, that I've got a calling, and it would be wrong for me to stop now so I could spend more time uh, with, with, my, with my grandchildren. So we have to weigh all those things uh, in there. But if you can stay closer to the family and have a good church and be involved in the kingdom in that way, then yes, that's great. There's almost a, a discounting of a man who's interested in taking a call close to family. Um, I was on a search committee at one point, and somebody brought up the fact about a particular candidate that, you know, he was just interested in our church because his kids lived equidistant from the church, you know, his his, his children. I'm not even going to say how many. And I thought, well, that's not a bad reason to, to explore a call or to consider a call, certainly if that's your only reason. That, that would not be appropriate. But if that's, if that's a contributing reason to your interest in a call or a job— if you're not in the ministry, I think that that's certainly well, for reasonable. a call. I would say it's got to be about tertiary, or, you know. Yeah, I but don't, don't think it's a good reason. Yeah, I but think it's, it's a good tertiary. supplemental reason. Yes, and that, that and you shouldn't cool. discount somebody if they've got. I mean, the call for church really comes down. To, I have a burden for these people, and I believe my gifts can help them. Yes, 
Exactly. Yeah. And I think for this particular man, yeah. that was the driving force of his interest. In, in yeah, and, the, and a poll committee is wrong to read a man's motives as well. Yeah. I mean, that's wrong as well. Uh, as you were speaking, a passage came to my mind as well, Blake, and that is uh, Christ says when we leave fathers, mothers, families, and farms for him. So he's assuming that we will do that and that he then will reward us. And, of course, in my case, my extended family was all unconverted, uh, anybody before my time. But what God has given me in the church, indeed, our brothers and sisters through the seminary. I mean, I have, I'm blessed with 10 grandchildren, and I love them and they love me, but I have scores more through my students, and I get to know their children. Uh, I have sons, uh, in a sense, who've come through the seminary, and I think of them uh, in that way. So there's other aspects. The church becomes our family. Now, if a man's family is Christian, so we'll get these qualifications, it's a good church, you can support your family in that situation, then yeah, that's great that in God's providence you can do that. Thank you for the question, Blake. This is Again, critical importance, and not one I think that's given much mind um, in our day and age, where jobs are are prioritized over family relationships. Yeah, let's, let's just take it a step beyond that. It's not in the question, but I uh, dealt with this a lot, particularly in, in Houston in the oil patch. People, if they're going to advance in their companies, uh, most of the oil companies, most of the big uh, electronic companies would move people every three or four years, very much like the military. And people were mindlessly just taking these jobs because they were promotions. And I said, well, wait a minute. The first thing you have to know is, is there a good Reformed church in that town? If there's not, you shouldn't be taking that job, even though it is. It, not to take it means no advancement. But we need to get our priorities uh, right with regard uh, to these things as well. Our next question is related. This comes from John Daniels of Princeton, North Carolina. And John asks, for Reformed believers living in a rural area with no biblical churches nearby, what do you advise? Well, I advise sacrificing and driving on the Lord's Day to the, uh, the nearest Reformed church you can and that the church cooperate with you. And in Houston, we had some people that lived pretty good distances, and we had about five four or five families that would alternate. So on the Lord's Day, we would host that family that's driving uh, an hour um, so they could stay for the evening service and have a normal Sabbath afternoon. So I think churches can do that. It's a sacrifice, but if that's where you are in God's providence, uh, I know that you've got a uh, a church in... uh, Goldsboro, and you've got the church in Raleigh. I know that you've probably, I know you visit the church in Raleigh. Uh, so I know there'll be people in that church that would be glad to uh, put you up for the day. But what you can't do is cut yourself off from biblical churches. Uh, it just means if you're there in God's providence, uh, that you, um, you're just going to have to make that sacrifice. Um, at least since you've asked my advice, that's what I'm recommending that you do. Take it or leave it, John. <laughs> our next question comes from our neighbor, Mark Olivero of Greer, South Carolina, and he asks, what are the basic principles that sustain Reformed Catholicity? Let's define Reformed Catholicity yes, first and then get into the principles. Exact, thank you. Uh, those that know me know I never talk about the Catholic Church. I talk about the Roman 
Catholic Church because um, that is the Roman Church with the Pope that claims to be the universal church, and believe me, it ain't. Um, Catholicity, well, in the, in the Apostles' Creed, we believe then in the Holy Catholic Church. And this gets back to what we have in the Westminster Standards, that the visible church uh, is also Catholic or universal, that every place where there are um, believers that name the name of Christ and have the marks of a church, then we recognize them as uh, uh, expressions of the visible body of Christ. That's important to do so. So Reformed ecumenicity then uh, is building on this concept that we recognize all with a credible profession of faith who are in uh, churches that would have the marks of a church to be uh, brothers and sisters. And at that level, anytime I'm out and I meet another Christian, they might be in what I consider a very weak church, but I rejoice to uh, come across a, a man or woman who professes Christ and Christ alone as their Lord and Savior. Now, from the church perspective, I have a series of concentric circles that I have worked out that at least work for me and work for the churches that I have uh, I've pastored. So uh, in the narrow circle, the, the churches that I would do uh, uh, cooperative programs with would be uh, churches that would be uh, confessional reformed and Presbyterian. But the next circle, and I did this in Houston, we would have uh, joint evangelistic activities with the uh, Calvinistic Baptist Church and people that their folks brought to the services um, they would continue to work with them people that our folks brought we would work with them but we would br bring in co-pay for um, a speaker to come in for, for those occasions and so there are things that we can be doing together uh, because we would have the same same principles and the next level would be um, concerts of prayer and uh, so prayer meetings for revival and uh, awakening and quickening. And can do that with uh, a group of um, people that would all be part of a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, confess Christ, but we would have different theologies uh, even with respect to say, the sovereignty of God in salvation. And the outer circle would be co-belligerents and people, if a Christian wanted to be involved with them um, in pro-life activities or whatever, that I think you're free. I don't think a church should get involved in those kind of activities. But So th those are some of the principles that I operate on for Reformed ecumenicity our Catholicity. You know, one thing that, that we didn't hit on is our esteem for historical theology and our, and our practicing of systematic theology. How do we appropriate what has come before us in such a way as to recognize the, the, the equal status of these believers from the past with us, right, to not be chronological snobs in C.S. Lewis's terminology without venerating them overmuch and being beholden to, to 
the conclusions that yeah, they've come to. That's good. One of the many things I've appreciated about Dr. Smith and about his uh, two-volume systematic theology was his breadth of knowledge of biblical and Reformed uh, tradition and scholarship. And he was just well-read in the various, uh, the, the Dutch, the Scottish, the American, uh, the English, uh, back into uh, the Church Fathers. Uh, there's a whole wealth of material that we're really neglecting today, I think, uh, in terms of the Church Fathers, that we would be better off if we knew more of Augustine uh, and Anselm and Aquinas. Um, I think Bavink makes, makes this point in his opening part of his systematics as well, that we build confessionally and we build in terms of, uh, of the truth because God has used the church through the centuries to come to ever clearer insights into Scripture. There was a recent publication related to the seminary, Dr. Jerry Crick, who um, has been deceased for a number of years and is with the Lord, used to teach here in our apologetics department, and he actually earned his Th.D. through Greenville Seminary in the early years under Dr. Smith's supervision, and he wrote his dissertation on Anselm's ontological argument, and um, through the efforts of some of his friends and his widow, we, we do have copies of it here at the seminary for purchase, and you can, uh, you can purchase it online at Amazon.com. And again, that's Jerry Crick on Anselm's ontological argument. I haven't read it myself. I have read it years ago. It's very useful. Yes. Yeah, so, so that might be a good, uh, a good example of appropriation of, uh, of a church father uh, bringing him and his ideas into today's discourse, theological discourse. Thank you for the question, Mark. I know a lot of folks are are, are increasing in their interest in Reformed Catholicity as a term, and, um, and I hope that that answer contributes to your understanding of guiding principles. Our next question comes from the Netherlands, from Andreas... Andreas, yes. Andreas, yep. I'm not. I'm not going to try your last name, brother. I don't want to embarrass myself. <laughs> His question is maybe more of a Belgic confession-related question, specifically Article 29. When can you say that a church does not administer the Holy Supper according to the Word of Christ, and thus becomes more like a false church than a true church? It is easy with the Roman Mass, but how do we distinguish this on the sub-Zwinglian side? Of the spectrum. Okay, Andreas, and we're glad that you listened to us across the uh, ocean there. Uh, let's get some things defined for our hearers. In the first place, the uh, Roman Catholic view of the Mass is that Christ uh, is literally present and re sacrificed, and they do that through a uh, doctrine called transubstantiation, where they teach that the bread and wine are changed into the true body and blood of Christ, keeping the accidents of bread and wine. Now, that's preposterous. Um, in fact, uh, the idiom hocus-pocus for magic actually is an abbreviation of the, this is uh, the body of Christ, hocus est corpus. So um, the Luther compromised with that and developed and Westminster Confession addresses both of these consubstantiation where he had said that Christ is literally present in around and under the elements. So the elements are not changed, but you literally take hold of Christ in the sacrament physically. And they develop a erroneous doctrine called the ubiquity of Christ. Because of his human nature, the God man is not omnipresent personally. 
It's by his spirit that he indwells his people. Calvin then developed the view of the spiritual presence of Christ that in some way, through the spirit, we take hold of the literal Christ uh, for nourishment, comfort, and strength. And that's basically the position of the Westminster Standards. Zwingli is often accused of being merely a memorialist, that uh, all we're doing in the Lord's Supper is remembering Christ's death. I think that Zwingli did see the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. Sub-Zwinglian in the question then is in our uh, evangelical churches that it is merely a memorial. It's not a means of grace. It's a way of remembering what Christ has done for us. For me, though, and I think this is useful in uh, the Westminster uh, Standards, uh, a true sacrament is um, defined as, say, larger catechism 162, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ in his church to signify, seal, and exhibit under those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of his mediation to strengthen and increase their faith and all of the graces to oblige them to obedience, testify, uh, and cherish their love and communion one with another and to distinguish them from those that are without. But then when it gets into... uh, uh, for example, baptism, true baptism then is to be administered by a lawfully ordained person. And so I think that what I'm looking for is, is the person lawfully ordained? Do they have the sacramental elements? Uh, and they're not in any way saying that we are sacrificing Christ. It's a sacrament and not a sacrifice. For me, those are the elements that I'm going to partake of the Lord's Supper. If, if those things are there, lawfully ordained person with the words of institution uh, and uh, not in any way teaching that there's a sacrifice taking place, uh, then so I could in good conscience take, although they wouldn't let me, at a Lutheran church or uh, they would let me at a Baptist church, uh, take uh, take the sacrament. But I, I think those are the things that the objective elements are much more important for us who are taking the sacrament than um, the underlying theology once we get away from uh, the idea that it's a, it's a mass, it's a sacrifice and not a sacrament. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Our next question comes from Jonathan Bartlett of Alpharetta, Georgia. And Jonathan is intending to begin studies with us this fall. We're looking forward to having him join our community. And he asks, is there a biblical basis for church summer camps? How should I think about church summer camps, such as outdoor adventure camps and the like, in terms of the mission of the church? Thanks, Jonathan. I look forward to getting to know you. Um, We have to define our terms. If you took out church and put Christian... I have no problem with Christian summer camps or Christian adventure camps. What we're getting down to, once again, is what is the mission of the church. And even though it's been lately publicly misstated, the doctrine of the spirituality of the church is very important. It's stated in the Westminster Confession of Faith. The church has been given the role of the gathering and perfecting of the saints. And that means we've been given the ministry and ordinances, so we have the Word of God. We preach the law of God. We apply the law of God. We preach the grace of the gospel. We disciple our people according to Matthew 28, teaching them all things that Christ has given to us. But 
that's the church's response. The church's response is not to run a, a, a shelter, a, a pregnancy crisis center, and the church's response is not to run a summer camp. But can Christians do that? Well, of course. That's, they're great. I, uh, I worked at a summer camp as a young Christian. I had friends in Jackson that ran very kind of high-end, high-class uh, summer camps with a Christian basis. They were, uh, would have all Christian uh, counselors uh, at those uh, camps. But in terms of the mission of the church, no. I think that summer camps ought not to be a mission of the church. And our last question for this episode comes from Caleb Shea of St. Paul, uh, Minnesota. And Caleb asks, what is the relationship between the moral law as expressed in the Ten Commandments and the covenant of works? It seems that the covenant of works only prohibits eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil without expressly stating the moral law. What would have happened had Adam and Eve broken the moral law? Like if Adam murdered Eve without violating God's command not to eat of the tree. Great question, Caleb. Just dealt with that uh, in the Man and Sin course this last semester. We have to understand that Adam, as the uh, holy and righteous image bearer of God, uh, had the law of God written on his heart and was responsible to keep all of the moral law. That was the context of his standing as covenant head. And given the probation then, with respect of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The importance about the probation was that it was not something that was inherently that Adam knew to be good or evil. It was merely, is he going to consent to the word of God and what God said to do was good and what God forbidden was evil. And so he had to keep that probationary commandment in context of obeying all the revelation he had, all the moral law of God, and that would include the Sabbath, uh, marriage, and uh, work, as they are also revealed in the second commandment. So there's the broader moral responsibility Adam had, then there's the probationary um, test with respect to the covenant of works. If Adam had broken any of God's laws, he would have been a lawbreaker. But because they were who he was, he had to be tested at his will not in terms of his nature. I had never thought of that. That is an excellent answer. He had to be tested at the level of his will, not his nature. Thank you, Caleb, for teeing Dr. Piper up for that statement of profundity at the end of our episode. And again, I want to remind... You want to do Israel's question? i got three minutes. All right, we can can handle one more question. Our next question comes from Israel uh, Koresma, and he asks... Why did the devil tempt Jesus knowing the prophecies of his defeat and his being the devil's defeat, of course? The devil is the personification of evil, and he hates God. And so he does anything he can to thwart the purposes of God. Uh, Perhaps, well, Israel, you're probably too young, but most of us know people that if they said something was white, we would be tempted to say it's black. (laughs) There's just this personality conflict that we would have with certain people. Well, with the devil, it was not just a personality conflict. It was the the great moral divide that he hates everything that God says. And so he's constantly opposing God, regardless of the fact that he's going to be defeated. But he's really insane at that point. He's basically so full of hatred and malice and thinking, maybe, maybe, maybe I can win this time. On a popular level, I use the example of the Roadrunner cartoons. 
in the Roadrunner cartoons, Wally the Coyote was always trying to kill the Roadrunner, and he was always getting beat up. But that didn't matter. By his nature, he was going to try to kill the Roadrunner. And so the whole thing was there that, that out of that malice, he just pursued him. And basically with Satan, it's irrational. Uh, it's malice and hatred. Perhaps the outside, ah, oh, I could, you know, maybe I can turn these things around. Uh, but mostly it's just malice and hatred. And thank you for the question, Israel. One important thing to note is, is how, how the enemy will twist Scripture to seek to thwart the purposes of God. So his hatred of God's Word does not mean that he never uses or seeks to use God's Word. That's right. Rather, he tries to corrupt our understanding of it. But like Christ, we must depend upon the whole counsel of God and the entire gospel that is all of God's revealed will for our good and for his glory. Well, thank you, Dr. Piper, for your time. Again, I commend to our listeners our summer courses, our various gatherings at the, the General Assemblies and Synods this summer, and certainly if you're ever passing through Greenville, please visit us. We would love to see you. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Thank you, Zach. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.